Father, thank you for speaking. We praise you as a God who speaks for your written word, for your incarnate word in Jesus. And we are dependent on you to hear. Give us here ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts that understand and receive and are changed. May it be so, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, if you ever happen to be walking through Harvard and you uh, come upon Emerson Hall and you look up, you're going to see this large inscription at the top of the building. And it was put there in 1905 when the, the building was finished, completed. Emerson Hall is the home of the philosophy department at Harvard. And the story is that what was supposed to be inscribed there at the request of the philosophy department at the time was a quote from the 5th century BC philosopher Protagoras. And it was this, man is the measure of all things. But what actually ended up being inscribed was a line from our psalm this morning, Psalm 8. What is man that thou art mindful of him? So I've read and heard two different stories of how this happened. One is that the then president, President Eliot, decided just to ignore the request and, and put up this inscription, which is the most attested to story. But it's hard to believe because he, he led the university in quite a secular route. The other story I was told by a former colleague and a Harvard alumni it's a little harder to believe, but I like it a lot more, <laughs> is the, that the one who was inscribing the letters, uh, he was working under the cover of a tarp throughout the summer to be able to work rain or shine. And that he decided he was going to ignore the request. And so he was working on another inscription that nobody knew about until the end of the summer, he pulled back the tarp and voila, Psalm 8 <laughs> was there that no one could change anymore at that point. Well, whatever happened, that is what is inscribed on Emerson Hall, the home of Harvard's philosophy department. What is man, that is humanity, that thou art mindful of him? That is a, a, a question philosophy students should be asking. I know a lot of students uh, are philosophy students here. Uh, and asking that to God. This is a question to God, not just to figure out on our own. But God, what is humanity? What makes them so significant that you would care for them? And actually, there's a great song by Johnny Cash I just came across last night. It's called What is Man? And he, he riffs off of Psalm 8. Go and listen to it if you can. It's really good. I was, I was thinking I should play it this morning, but I don't know if that would have worked. But, um, but what is uh, what is? What are human beings that make them so significant in God's eyes? The answer to that question is what has motivated the people of God to pursue hospitality throughout history, to care for, welcome all kinds of people, especially the least, the last, and the lost. This is what is in the imagination of people who have practiced hospitality in radical ways for the last 2,000 years. The answer to this question is what gave birth to human rights as we know them today that are probably different than maybe they originated in, but 
The idea that every person has equal value and dignity comes out of the answer to this question that the psalmist is asking. That the idea that every human has equal value and dignity, this is, um, this is a strange idea in the history of the world. This is not the normal idea. This is not what you come across. If you want to study ancient civilizations, peoples, religions, philosophies, this is not what you find. Normally what you see, which I don't agree with, of course, which I'm sure none of us would agree with, at least in theory, is a hierarchy of value amongst humans. This is just the way it is. So, for example, in ancient cultures, kings were and leaders were at the top. They had the greatest value. Then beneath them were free men. They had, had great value, but less than kings. Below that were free women. They were seen as less valuable as men. And finally, at the bottom of the totem pole were slaves, forced labor, who had little to no value in, in people's understandings. And that's just the way it was. That's just how you accepted it. You just accepted that. That's the kind of thing you see in ancient religions and cultures. And then there was this little group of people in the ancient Near East who had this book that said something else, that was radical, that was subversive, that said every man, woman, and child was made in the image of their maker. Everyone. That gave them such dignity and significance and purpose. Everyone had this. That's not what people were saying. No one was saying that at this time. Other people were saying the only image of God on the earth was a statue in a temple, say, or the king at best. The king could maybe be the image of God, but nobody else. So here's a, an ancient Assyrian text. Quote, a free man is as the shadow of a god. The slave as a shadow of the free man. But the king is like unto the very image of God. You see that? The hierarchy of value there. Notice women aren't even included. And notice it's the king that's only in the image of God, understood to be in the image of God. And then you read Genesis chapter 1. 27. God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So Genesis, among other things, is a polemic, a correction, a rectification of, of these ancient Near Eastern assumptions at this time that are still at work today. It's a declaration of universal human dignity and value and purpose for everyone, for every man, woman, and child. Every man, woman, and child, every person is a finite reflection of our infinite God. And that makes them something significant. So each of us, not just kings, but each of us is meant to rule on the earth with this dignity in the sphere of sovereignty that God has given each of us, which differs. But each of us is to rule with that dignity as, in a sense, kings and queens of the earth. 
ruling in a way that reflects and represents God, of course, and his ways on the earth, which, if, which should mean not domination over the earth, but dominion, care over creation and all the creatures of the earth. We should be reflecting God and his ways in the way we garden, as it is described in Genesis chapter 2, in the way we make culture, what has been called the cultural mandate of Genesis 1 and 2, in the way we relate to one another, all of that should be a reflection, a representation of God on the earth. What higher dignity and calling could we have as creatures? And yet it gets better. In the ancient Near East, deities would have a, a temple, and in the middle of the temple, they would have an image. And it was understood that the life of the deity was in this image. And you see that in Genesis. But God breathes life into Adam, a flesh and blood human being, not a lifeless statue. Both Adam and Eve are God's temple. I mean, sorry, they're his image in his temple, and the temple is not just some building. In Genesis, it's the whole creation. They are God's images to represent him in the created order. And then at times there would be this ritual at a certain point when it was understood that not just the life of the deity was to enter this statue, but the very presence of the deity was to enter the statue. We don't see that in Genesis. We see the life come into Adam and Eve. But it's not until the New Testament that we see people in Christ becoming the temples of the Holy Spirit. That Christ makes his home, dwells in our hearts by faith. That's why God created us and redeemed us. What higher purpose and dignity could we have than that as creatures? And of course, this is for all of humanity, not just part of it. And this is for all of our humanity, just not, not just part of it. It's for our mind. It includes our, our spirit. And it includes especially our bodies. We're not, we're not just a divine spark caught in matter. We are made and called to express the life of God and the rule of God in embodied ways. So that the fact that we were made from the dust of the earth, that's not our humiliation. That's part of our dignity. So maybe, maybe angels get to reflect God's life and ways in, in purely spiritual ways, but that's not why we were made. We have the honor of expressing the life and rule of God in bodily ways, in human culture. That's part of our dignity. That's part of our calling, our purpose as creatures. That makes our bodies incredibly significant, valuable, which means we should respect these bodies that we have, care for them, treasure them, value them. That is a big part of the tradition of hospitality, of Christian hospitality, seeing that in people responding to that value. And therefore, we should never, ever harm or destroy a human body. So I have this strong statement in Genesis 9, 6. 
hear this. This is after the fall, after the fall of Adam and Eve. God says to Noah, whoever sheds the blood of a human, by a human that person's blood be shed. For in his own image, God made humankind. The killing of a human is so wrong because that person, God says, is made in my image. This is after the fall. This is after a bleak description of people. In the, in the previous verse, in chapter 8 in Genesis, it says this, the people at this time, every inclination of the human heart was evil from childhood. And yet God doesn't say, well, you know what? Now just do what you want with them. They deserve it. No, he says, don't touch them. They're made in my image. They have incredible value. Hands off. So just because I'm a sinner and morally unworthy doesn't mean I'm without any worth. It's a big, big thing to distinguish in our minds. Despite the fact that sin stains our lives, it hasn't wiped away the image of God. That remains. And the significance and the dignity and the purpose remains for people. It might be a wreck, it might be a ruin, but as Francis Schaeffer used to say, it's a glorious ruin still. And Psalm 8 gives us a beautiful description, beautiful images that highlight that glory for us, that help us imagine that and keep that in our hearts and the way we think of each other. Psalm 8. <clears throat> the scene seems to be David, he's just lying there, at the, looking at the night sky, at the stars. And as he's doing that, he's contemplating the, the smallness and the significance of human beings. And this driving question of his heart that's at the center of the psalm is, what are human beings that you care for them, God? And the answer is basically a creative paraphrase expansion of what we heard in Genesis about the image of God. So like Genesis, you have him talk, he's talking about ruling. This is the dominion part, putting everything under their feet. He mentions the same animals, but he, he reverses the order. And then he adds these different beautiful images. He's writing a poem about being made in God's image, but yet he never uses the word image or likeness. And what he adds is beautiful. He says, you have made them a little lower than the angels. So biologically, we might be just a little above the monkeys, but when it comes to value and purpose, we're a little lower than the angels. Or another way to translate it is a little lower than God. So Old Testament scholar Elmer Martins put it like this, on a, on a line with one being the brutish animal and ten being God, humanity is an eight or a nine in his estimation of things. And the more we see that, the more we're going to be delivered from this burden of trying to substantiate ourselves through our accomplishments. The less we're going to be obsessed with what people see us as and trying to get them to value us. And the more we'll be free to actually look at them as God sees them. 
We don't need to substantiate ourselves. We have been substantiated as God's image. God has already crowned each of us with glory and honor. The glory and honor that's greater than the glory of the the moon and the stars that David was beholding because it's the, the glory and the honor of being God's image. And this means so much to God, he's willing to die for it, as he did in Christ. Christ tasted death for every image bearer. Do we see ourselves with this crown? Do we see others with this crown? C.S. Lewis did. He remarked at the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II, quote, The pressing of that huge, heavy crown on that small, young head was a symbol of the situation of all people. I once heard that faith is is revelation plus imagination. That's what C.S. Lewis was doing with Psalm 8. That's what we should be doing with Psalm 8, imagining our friends, the strangers we meet, the people who are quite different from us, the people who are rude to us, the people who ask us for money as we pass them by, the people we habitually ignore. Do we imagine this crown on their head? Christine Pohl, in in chapter 4 of Making Room, mentions how significant this way of seeing people has been for those who pursue hospitality. This is a constant theme in this tradition. This is what motivated people to care for and reach out to all kinds of people, especially the least, the last, and the lost amongst us. Those who have just happened to be especially at the bottom of the value hierarchy of their day. And there's always one at work. And no matter what political spectrum you're on, there's one at work you can recognize. So yeah, why make yourself uncomfortable? Why interrupt your schedule? Why take time to welcome someone, to listen to them? Because they're made in the image of God. He's crowned them with glory and honor. Do we see that? Now, if you don't have a grand vision for God, this doesn't mean much to you. (laughs) And that's what I think we see in our day. A secular age is when God gets eclipsed. We don't see the grandeur of God and what it would mean to be made in his image. And I think the more that happens, the more we go back to man is the measure of all things. And the more that happens, I think the more you see that hierarchy of value coming back. And then you see cruelty and destruction to certain parts of the population. It's okay to do that. Because we lose sight of the grandeur of God and how he has marked these people with his image. The greater we see that, the more we're going to see how every life matters more than we can imagine more than we can put a value on them. We need again to hear that question. That's on Emerson Hall. And the answer. 
And we don't just need it inscribed there. We need it within us. We need it to fill our imagination when we look at people. In 2010, in the Museum of Modern Art in New York, there was this art performance. It was called The Artist, the Artist is Present. And it was cre- created and performed by this lady, Marina Abramovic, who basically stared at people for 700 hours. <laughs> she did this for eight hours a day over a three-month period. She would come into this atrium She would sit at this wooden table in the same chair with pretty much the same clothes and just not talk, just look at people. And across from her was this chair, this empty chair. And people would come and take turns just to sit in the chair and have this mutual gaze with each other. She said, quote, nobody could imagine that anybody would take time to sit and just engage in mutual gaze with me. But in fact, the chair was always full. It was always filled, and there was always a lineup. A thousand people came and sat in that chair over a three-month period. She said, it was a complete surprise, this enormous need of humans to actually have contact. (laughs) Could talk about that for a while. (laughs) Yeah, some people could only last a few minutes. Some people lasted a whole day. Some people just started crying as did she at moments. What if we did that, but we called it the psalmist is present? And as we sat in Marina's chair, we had Psalm 8 filling our imagination. And the the empty chair, that was for the the people in our lives, the strangers in our lives that we, we encounter. And we let them sit there and we asked the question of Psalm 8, Who is this person that God would care for them? And then we would imagine the answer. He's made them a little lower than the angels. He's crowned them with the glory and honor of his image. His son has died for this image bearer. He wants to fill this image bearer. What would happen if that is how we imagined people, if we if we thought that way about people. Well, what might happen is, um, well, we can know what happened actually in history. According to the research of Brian Tierney of Cornell University, when Christian lawyers started, Christian canon lawyers started doing that in the 12th century, they started coming up with what we now know as human rights. Again, according to Christine Pohl, that kind of imagining of people is what led people to practice and pursue hospitality in radical ways. That was part of this revolution in human history that we've been talking about. And certainly that has been my experience when we, as we lived and worked at Labrie Fellowship, this place given to Christian hospitality. A huge reason this place exists is because there's this belief that everybody's made in God's image, and therefore, they deserve to be welcomed. They deserve to be listened to. They deserve to be shared a meal with and companionship and the good news and the way of Christ. That is, that is at the front of the hospitality tradition. So we do just need to keep asking ourselves, who is this person before me, God, that you would care for them? 
You've made them a little lower than the angels. You've crowned them with glory and honor. May I welcome them and care for them as such. Let's pray. Father, what an honor to be made in your image. And yes, we have. We have failed in this purpose, and we thank you. You have not held that against us, but you forgive us. You restore us through the death of Christ. But Lord, help us, help us to see not just ourselves, but each other in this way. Give us that imagination. Give us, give us the right response to that. In Jesus, amen.